Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas tardes. I'm joined today by one of our regulars, Professor John Barry, the world's first professor of green political economy. I always like to remind everyone of that. Um, a well-known Marxist lentilist. I've stolen one of your lines already. Um, John and his comrades have launched their own podcast, um, launched this week with Thierry McHugh, Lorna Bogue, and Sinead Mercia, and no doubt there'll be others involved, called the ABCs of Green Politics, which is available on all usual platforms, um, and also forms part of the family of podcasts hosted on a new Patreon called Left Block, um, alongside Nul Nanog, which is an Irish language podcast, which won podcast of the week this week, by the way, and of course, the Week at Work, a left-wing review of contemporary issues in Irish politics and world politics, and another new podcast kicking off next week is Offshore, uh, a new podcast kind of co-hosted by and coordinated by Emma Clancy about all things money, tax, and finance capital. All of those, again, available on Left Block, and watch out for the new Left Block website coming your way, which will include a blog and some articles and other bits and bobs. I mean, where the fuck would you get that to I me mean, for nothing like? If you want to pay for it, you can go on Left Block and become a patron, of course. Um, at this point, I think we're just spoiling you now. Um, our other guest, and he's very welcome, is uh, Stuart McGill. Um, Stuart's a comrade from London, based in London. He's a semi-retired martial arts instructor, a former Labour Party member, and a former banker. And he tells me he's not sure which of those he's most embarrassed about. You're very welcome, Stuart. You're very welcome, John. Um, and we're here today to talk about something that um, I, for one, have been tackling for a couple of years now. Uh, it's a little thing called modern monetary theory, but don't do a runner, don't leg it. I know, it has mon- I know it has monetary and theory in the top. I'm going to try and make it interesting for you. Um, very briefly, for those of you that don't know, MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, is a fairly kind of heterodox economic theory that's moved from the periphery to relatively the centre of economic discussions and indeed political discussions in a very short space of time, particularly under the, uh, during the COVID period. And it's kind of broken through in different places at different times. And into the, I mean, you can open up the Financial Times now and read people talking about MMT, which would be unheard of 18 months ago. In America, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Bernie campaign people started talking about modern monetary theory, and that was a big shake-up for, for the mainstream, if you like. Um, she said MMT needs to be part of a wider conversation. Um, and a lot of that based on a best-selling book by Stephanie Kelton, The Deficit Myth. You can get that and have a look at it. I'll, I'll leave a list of books on our Anchor site so you can have a look at the people and articles. Um, like our own Stuart here has written an article on it. Uh, and others like Bill Mitchell and Thomas Fazzi in Europe have come at it from a kind of left-wing perspective. Um, I think Bill Mitchell actually coined the phrase MMT. You kind of give these various lenses of analysis that kind of that kind of sobriquet. Um, in Britain, the Labour Party briefly flirted with the idea before dumping it very quickly when they realised they couldn't sell it to the electorate. Um, and they kind of shifted back to their austerity light Austerian politics. Um, and in the Republic of Ireland, no one talks about it because they handed over their economic sovereignty to the European Union many years ago. And we'll get onto that and we'll get onto the, why that's important. Um, it's not so much a free and independent, it's more like a free and independent, but not quite sovereign Ireland that we're kind of struggling for now. Um, so that's kind of here what we're going to talk about. It might take a couple of podcasts. We'll, we'll see how we go. Um, and I want to ask the lads first. I'm going to go to you first, John, if I can. And I'll ask you, be honest about this one because I will be. 
when did you first hear about MMT? When did it kind of first come across your computer screen? Uh, and what were your first thoughts? Um, it was probably about this time last year. I, I've always been interested in uh, positive money was a kind of a, a movement in, in, in the UK. Uh, and there was a local branch here in the north that was kind of talking about this issue of the role of finance, the you know, the issue of a sovereign currency issuing um, government. And in particular for me, and it's something you and I, Stefan, have spoken about on and off over the years, but then I never had the time to go into it, is that the left had almost abandoned an analysis of finance uh, in terms of um, looking at its politics and its responses in, in the current era. So for me, it was uh, probably on this time last year. And it, to me, it struck me as counterintuitive because I was schooled as many of us was in the view that, uh, you know, the state's finances, well, it's exactly like a household. You need to get income in before you can spend it. So the whole um, anti-deficit uh, perspective, even from a left-wing perspective, you know, point of view made sense. So why would we burden the next generation if we go and, you know, borrow? And I now realize that it was all fucking wrong. You know, even though I'm a, I was a professor of, of economics, um, and on the left, I had a completely fucking wrong view of how money is created, the role of money. And I'll just finish by saying that one of the insights for me for MMT, and there are left and right wing versions of it, it's not all progressive, at least anybody be under any illusion, is it actually reminded me of the important Marxist point of an asset materialist understanding of the economy. It's not about the finance, ultimately, although in a modern complex economy, we do need a financial system it's just it's actually about the resources in a society to meet our needs that's what really i i enjoy and has reawakened in a way my uh, was never quite recidivist but my lapsed marxism has come back to the fore as a result of mmt cheers for that john yeah one of the words you use there or two the counterintuitive is the word that sums up people's initial response and i've done a number of seminars this year with punters that we normally work with from ex-prisoner groups through to trade union groups and they all kind of sit in stunned silence when you talk to them about it. Stuart, when did you first come in contact with the, with this kind of lens through which we look at government finances and spending and so on? I vaguely remember reading something about it in uh, with Richard Murphy a couple of years ago. Didn't pay it too much mind. Then uh, Mitchell and Ray brought out that big textbook last year. I think it was last year, the macroeconomics one. Oh, New. the big, big thick one. That yeah, the that's it. Yeah, I got it in Kindle so as not to put too much uh, bullshit around the house. Uh, and um, again, from my point of view, I did economics first back in the late 70s, and I went to the LSE between 79 and 82. Uh, the norms were different in those days. I remember, as a much younger man reading in those days, the Bank of England briefings, and a lot of stuff they talked then was the sort of stuff that MMT people would talk now. It was recognised that the deficit wasn't a problem in itself, and the more important thing was to balance the economy. Uh, because the deficits didn't really matter that much in the general scheme of things. And since the end of World War II, I think there's been maybe a dozen times in which the deficit, so public accounts have been in surplus. And it's not always good to be in surplus because it means you're taking money away from the rest of the economy. There's a wee quote I dug out here from uh, uh, late Lord Crowham, a distinguished Treasury Permanent Secretary, and no lefty. And he said what mattered was balancing the economy not the budget. And I think that kind of sums up quite a bit of the MMT descriptive element anyway. Yeah, we'll get on to that later on because the, the fetish of, of deficits and debts became the, 
kind of dominant discourse, didn't it, over the last 10 years as an excuse for austerity. And MMT allowed us, it's kind of a lens, isn't it, allowed us to look through that and think, actually, that's all bullshit. And that's made up and that just legitimizes the last 12 years of austerity. And as we're going to speak later on, it's also being used right again to legitimize how we're going to pay for the expenditure of COVID. John, uh, if, if it is a lens, if it is a, and as you said, it's not left or right, it's just a way of looking at finances and money creation that's, that's different from the way we've been taught. What does it tell us about how government kind of finances work? If you can give me a couple of bullet points so that people start kind of getting their heads around this. I, well, just to go back to maybe summarise what Stuart and yourselves were discussing there. I mean, this is like Thatcherite handbag economics. I mean, she famously, you know, uh, viewed the state's finances exactly through this metaphor of a household budget. And the problem is that's very, very powerful. It, uh, it's intuitive. We all know what it's like to have a budget and so forth. So this model that the state actually needs to raise taxes or borrow or engage in, in welfare state cutting to pay for uh, expenses makes ideological sense or it has that, has that common sense and that Gramscian uh, perspective. What it really brings back for me, MMT, is the ideological decisions around austerity. You know, even at the last financial crisis, most of us, you know, viewed you know, how is it that a private sector banking crisis, the solution is public sector cuts? Jesus, how did that happen? It was like fucking alchemy, you know, turning dross metals in, into gold in some way. And for me, MMT brings home that a, a sovereign fiat-based, you know, currency-issuing government can never run out of its own tokens. You know, the, the nice description is it's like, you know, a referee running out of points to award uh, decides. That is not the issue. So for me, it's about seeing that this um, finance fetish around the deficit and so on is a form of ideological common sense, which including people like me were uh, suffering under up until very recently. But also it means that a country like Britain or the States or Australia, you know, is obviously a different issue with uh, Eurozone countries, as you mentioned, Stefan, that the decision for the state not to use this enormous power to issue into existence the money it needs to get things done is an ideological choice. So MMT is how the world actually works now. It's just that right-wing understandings of it is that the state is not going to use this power, while left-wing versions would be that the state can engage in you know, issuing into existence currency to get people back to work, to invest in a Green New Deal, and so on. So for me, it's, a, it's an accurate description of how the world works in the context of the financialized nature of the 21st century. Yeah, I want to come at you, Stuart, on that same point, because it isn't just how the government could work, it's how the government does work, isn't it? I mean, this is the point, isn't it, about that counterintuitive is the world turned upside down because we're told that the government, you know, um, taxes money, gathers up all this money like smog and sits on all this gold and diamonds and it gets to its end of a 12-month period and it goes, oh, look, we've got five billion. Now this year, let's spend that five billion on public services. But that's not how, as John's kind of alluded to, that's not how it works, is it? It's the other way around. Uh, no, not at all. And uh, yeah, interesting couple of points there. It does also question the, the wisdom of the euro. All right, which does we'll get on to that one in a minute, mate. We'll oh, yeah, okay, give the euro boot and the bollocks in a minute. Okay, that's cool. Okay, yeah. I just, I just, it's an easy target. I like to go for it, but we'll start on that faster later. Uh, but also, in all honesty, this gets into the whole issue of do people, serious people, really believe this old touch? Me, I don't believe Thatcher did. I didn't like the woman, I hated the woman, but I could always see how she got the job. 
And Thatcher was actually quite pragmatic. I think at the end of her 11 years of misery and power, public sector debt as a percentage of GDP was about the same as it was when she took over. She didn't make a huge amount of change from that point of view. And she kept on spending. I mean, a lot of it was spent up uh, on keeping going the people she made unemployed as part of an attempt to destroy the trade union movement. But she understood how things operated. When Greenspan was asked a few years ago by Paul Ryan, a loaded question about, basically, we can't afford this, can we? Greenspan under oath said, well, actually, we could because the government can flick a couple of switches and spend what it wants. The money is always there. Uh, but the problem is the counterintuitive one. I saw a young man on Question Time a few years ago, and he said to the Labour guy, then, you can't be serious that you need to borrow more money in order to reduce your borrowings. But it's what happens. The experience of the United States after the uh, 2008 crash is an interesting example here. I've got problems with Obama, but one thing he did was listen to his economic advisors who said, do not go for European-style austerity. So the United States begun to recover much quicker, and its annual deficits went down much quicker than those of the European Union. Uh, we'll talk about QE later, but uh, yeah, for both America and for the UK, given the Gordon Brown stimulus of 2009 and 2010 until the Tory took over, the recovery was significantly better uh, than that of the European nations because they put in a, a, a significant fiscal stimulus. Yeah, Can I just offer a, a, an analogy here in terms of this kind of uh, busting this deficit uh, fetish or myth as Stephanie Kelton talks of? On the one hand, if the government is running a deficit, well, the laws of the fucking universe say there has to be a surplus somewhere else. I mean, where's it gone for a start? You know, and of course, it ends up usually in the private sector in, you know, with, with financial elites. But you've both probably heard this joke, but I think it, it really is illustrative. And I'll tell the clean version of it in terms of illustrating this issue around money and debt. You know the story about the German tourist who comes to a B&B and says, listen, I'd like to stay the night, but can I look, I can look at the room first? And he lays down 100 euro and it goes up and said, you know, for my bona fides. So that the B&B owner has a debt at the uh, at the local pub, goes down, pays off his debt, at the, at the, you know, the publican. The publican says, fuck, I, I need to pay the butcher. For we had a big session here last week and I owe the butcher. Goes to the butcher, pays him off. The butcher says, oh, shit. I remember the farmer I got my stuff from. Goes to the farmer, pays the farmer with the 100 euro. The farmer says, fuck, I got really hammered at that session last Saturday and I, I stopped off in the B&B. So I owe your man the 100 euro. The farmer goes back to the B&B, puts the 100 euro back down and gives it to the uh, the owner. Next of all, your man comes down and picks up his, his, his 100 euro and says, no, nah, I don't want the room and goes off. <laughs> so in all of that, all the debts have been honoured. So what does that mean? It means that what we're looking at is money is a claim on resources, that resources are the issue, and that we fetishized money and deficit. And I think it's a lovely uh, way of just illustrating uh, this myth, this mythic way in which money has become a thing in itself, as, as both of you, as good Marxists, would, would know. But it is about you know, puncturing that notion that somehow the deficit itself is a problem. It is not a problem. The only real limits and constraints on the economy are the actual material resources we have at hand. It is not the money. The money is there as the grease, as the, you know, the software to make the hardware work, call it what you will. It's a claim on resources. And I think that materialist analysis is, for me, 
and maybe a slightly odd way of reading MMT for the first time. But that's what was extremely obvious for me is that old Marxist notion that it's resources, it's ownership and control of and so on. But it's but it, it it dominates discourse that deficit thing. It's really hard to get away from. It's so embedded in people's thinking about how the world works that, and as you said, that language that goes along with it. You know, the bankruptcy. We're nearly greased. We're like a household. We've got to balance the books. The public sector has to live with them. In this means we've got to rebalance the economy. And you hear that every day on every single news channel, every yeah. single business report that they all buy into that that hegemonic kind of control of how we think about economics. Which Stuart made the point is whether they believe it or not is another matter whether the people in government know exactly how the government finances work, but this works really well for them because it legitimizes what's to come. And that Thatcher, Thatcher had another brilliant quote. She said, um, economics are the method, but the point is to change people's hearts and souls. It's to get people to believe in this bullshit. And that was extremely successful to the point now where, you know, 99% of the population, most politicians believe that governments tax, gather up money and then spend. And when you go to them and say, well, actually, no, no, governments spend first the economy, yeah. and then they tax back. Um, and deficits, in fact, if you want to, they're evidence, in fact, that the state spend in advance of receiving any income. Because if they wait until the money rolled in, well, there wouldn't be any deficit, would there? I mean, it's no, basically it's also, accounting into the mean. It is, but it's, it's like the point that Stuart mentioned, that if it's if the government's running a surplus, that's a bad thing, because it means that it's taken too much well, <laughs> out of the economy. Stuart made a point that I think I looked up in the OECD recently. In the last 45 years, they've run a surplus four times, and it was a mistake each time. That was before the deficit and the myth became the mainstream way of analysing economics. There's some guy that uh, Stephanie Kelton quotes in her rather good book, though somewhat incomplete book in my view. We'll come on to that later. Uh, every time the US government run a serious surplus, it was followed by a recession, including the Clinton government in the late 1990s. I think that I think we're all pretty much on the same page here, but we know the caution. This intersectoral analysis, which Kelton does, is very good. And it's based on the works of Wayne Godley, who's a much underrated kind of neo-Keynesian economist. But she leaves out the overseas sector. Now, it's not the problem for the United States because the overseas sector is minor compared to the size of the economy. It could potentially become a constraining factor for us because if you, go, if you basically, if it's just private and public, then yeah, one surplus you can't without. If a significant part of your deficit ends up in a balance of payments deficit, money flowing out of the economy, pressure on your currency, prices go up, that is a constraining factor. But getting back to what John was saying, that's also basically um, your resources are the constraining factor there and your ability to use those resources effectively. Um, the power of the power of the deficit mentality is something which is reflected, I think, outside of just this area. Right-wing ideas in general are much more specious and much more easy to get across to the people. Uh, that's why a simple slogan like, say, get Brexit done, worked very well. All right, for someone like Johnson last time around, irrespective of what you think of Brexit. The sort of conversation we're having here, nuanced conversation about intersectoral flows, this isn't going to get many people really flowing with, with glee and joy here, apart from anorites like us. But the, the other problem with that, of course, is, is, is the left doesn't engage in enough nuanced conversation about how these things work either, because if yeah. you think of that whole idea that, that this embedded in people's understanding of finance, the government spend and then tax, well, then that leads to the, the left's placard saying tax the rich. And you're looking at them going, oh, for fuck's sake, lads. Yeah. No, it's not about taxing the rich. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not the issue here. But... Every leftist demonstration we go to, that's the only analysis and answer they have, is that we need to tax the rich more. And yes, we may need to tax the rich more, but not for the reasons they think it is. Because MMT says, actually, 
If government spend first into the economy, we tax back. We don't need taxes to spend. So why do we tax? And that's sort of the next question I'm going to do is tax, because it's central to these debates as well, isn't it? Because any time, you'll know this, any time you mention modern monetary theory, printing money, quantitative easing, direct monetary finance, all of this stuff, what do people shout back at you? Inflation. Zimbabwe. Weimar yeah, yeah. Republic. Hyperinflation. Yeah. So what, what, yeah, does, what does yeah. MMD tell us about what tax is actually for? Uh, what is it uh, well, uh, well, in my own view, uh, from again, I, I, I would very much see myself as a novice amongst the three of us here talking about this, but is that taxes are there in part to uh, help reduce those inflationary, uh, perhaps, dynamics. Again, my own take, and I'm presuming you two would share with me, and again, it's, a, it's what MMT has, has put me down uh, the path of learning more about, is the class politics around inflation. Which and, and I've dug into it, there's a little bit of class analysis of the role of inflation, because, of course, that's what all these bastard monetarists were concerned about, uh, the, who informed Thatcher, you know, Reagan, Helmut Kohl, the kind of harbingers of neoliberalism, was we had to, you know, avoid uh, inflation. Uh, but actually, controlling inflation is a form of class politics. It's a form of class redistribution of resources, and as far as I understand it, well, A, there's that issue we can talk about inflation and class politics. And why is it that the right were so inordinately you know, concerned about keeping inflation down? And of course, uh, that the way you keep inflation down was by your fucking unemployment. And we can get on to the kind of job guarantee scheme that MMT sometimes proposes a way around that. But what I would also say is that this issue of you know, inflation um, can be controlled in part by taxation. That's the government's job is to... Uh, you know, manage the economy uh, to maximize its production function. Sorry to <clears throat> be a little bit technical. That just simply means what can the complement of assets, land, resources, energy, uh, you know, the skills of <clears throat> the skills of our people, what can it produce and, and make sure that, well, if we start to see inflationary pressures, well, maybe we need to tax people who are spending stupidly on, you know, superfluous goods. So, you, yeah, that's where taxing the rich or the forms of consumption or behaviours we want to dissuade from, partly as a result of keeping the economy from overheating. Because essentially, essentially tax, sorry, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. So that's where taxation can take some of the heat out of the system, it, it, at that we're already at the maximum of productive capacity in that, in that respect. But I would like, maybe it's a separate uh, podcast, Stefan, about the class politics around inflation. I'm happy to go there now. I mean, inflation is a site of class struggle. There's no doubt in that, Stuart. Do you want, have you got anything to say on that point there? Because, I mean, you're talking about inflation and what inflation does to assets, who owns assets and where wealth comes from or what wealth is and how income is drawn from that wealth. It's all about inflation, isn't it, mate? You know that as a former banker. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, inflation does get in the way. It screws up assets and so on. It leads to uh, a certain level of uncertainty as well. Uh, and which is why we had the, the so-called stagflation of the 1970s, because people didn't want to invest, didn't want to take the risks, because they had no idea how much it was, uh, how much revenue they were going to get back. It also screws up accounting as well. I remember working for a while with British Steel uh, in the 80s, and one of the big problems they had in the times of high inflation was valuing assets, because you buy an asset at a certain level, inflation comes in, so how do you depreciate, etc. Capitalization of VAT, all sorts of technical things like that were screwed up by inflation. But the real reason, of course, and John's quite right here, is the, the measures you take to defeat inflation are basically those which emasculate the working class and working class movements. And that's why someone like Friedman and his supporters, this ridiculous MV equals PQ, which is just a mathematical, sorry, 
The amount of money in the economy is M. V is the velocity, the speed with which it is spent. Price is at the price level, and sorry, P is prices, and Q is quantity. So Friedman claimed to have traveled the hills of Albania, showing that everywhere V stays the same. So if you increase the money supply, V will go up. Then because of the ridiculous rational expectation school, which seems to posit that everybody, including working class people in the factories, know the exact impact of government expenditure, etc. They'll guess what it is. So Q wants to the same. So, so, so sorry, P, the price level has to go up. This is just nonsensical bullshit. And Freedom actually admitted towards the end of his life that he was wrong about this. But it served a particular purpose because one of the real problems that people had with the so-called post-war consensus, the capitalist class, I mean, is that the working class had power, full employment, trade unions having passed. One of the few times we had something approaching democracy in these islands because you had the strong trade union movement and that had to be defeated. And this was all part of the ideological buttress in that confrontation. I want to take us very briefly back because I want people who listen to this to confirm some of these bullet points in their head, if you know what I mean. And back to that idea of tax that the MMT lends. It's not a policy. It's not a, an ideological position. It's just a way of looking at how government's expending and money supply works. So governments don't tax to spend. Governments tax to, to, to delete money from the economy. They take money out of the economy and it is destroyed. In order, therefore, some way, some would argue to balance from inflation. That's one of its key goals, is to make sure that there's inflation stable limits. But that's its actual role, isn't it? But that's really hard for people to get their heads around. And all of the pla placards carried by all of our ultra-leftist organisations and others are going to have to be reprinted, aren't they? For another reason why we still should tax the rich, but not for the reasons we yeah. think uh, absolutely. I mean, in, in some respects, MMT is a, a kind of a, a functional analysis of, of it actually is how the economy works. Um, and therefore, taxing the rich is more of a, an ideological, it could be part of a class struggle, but it's not necessary for the economy to function effectively, to deliver jobs and invest in the things that we need. That's the difference. So if, if people are carrying placards saying, you know, tax or eat the rich, um, for ideological, normative, or even ethical reasons, that's fine. But don't confuse that with political economy. Um, that's the issue we're talking about here, is that from a political economy perspective, there's no need to, to tax the rich, although we should, because inequality in society has other negative impacts. You know, you know, you read the Wilkinson and Pickett book, you know, name me one, one thing that happens in a massively unequal society that's good. So that, But they're more social issues of solidarity and so on, but they're not necessarily for a functioning economy that we need to necessarily tax like uh, Yeah, I mean, for the, if you're a leftist, taking money off the rich is a good thing because it makes them less influential and less powerful. That's surely yeah. it. So that's why we tax the corn good. I think it's something more than that. It was kind of generally accepted in, uh, God, even in America in the post-war years that if the wealthy make an awful lot of dust, like they did say in the 1920s, there's a good chance they'll piss it away, which they did, and 1929 crash. And the same thing happened in America and in the UK before the 2008 crash. So one of the rationales for high taxation was you take money off these very wealthy people and you do something productive with it. There have been various studies which have shown that the years of greatest growth across the US and American economies have come when the rich have been taxed. So and there are good economic reasons to tax them. Also, again, a few studies have uh, verified this. We'll try and dig them out and send them to you later. If you tax the very, very wealthy, then they're less likely to go ahead and take all the money in terms of shares or in terms of income. 
sector, what they'll do is invest more. And there's a pretty serious relationship between taxes, high marginal tax rates on the top boys, and the level of investment. Investment has tanked, basically, in the States and in the UK over the last, well, probably since the, the mid-70s, certainly over the last 15, 16 years, been very poor, because they keep all the dosh. And they stay. They, they used to stay for about 14, 15 years. CEOs stay now for about 18 months, uh, maybe, maybe three years. Then they fuck off somewhere else. Why bother investing in the company? Take all the dough and get out. So there are good reasons, uh, rather apart from just curtailing the political power of the rich for high taxation. Yeah, one of the reasons I like the concept of taxing the rich to punish them. So I know it's not a great sell if you're in electoral politics. But I like the idea of taxing the rich to punish them. But also then you've only got to do go one means further. Let's not let's not just take their wealth off. Let's take off them the means of creating that wealth. It's like the next step in that kind of thinking. I want to, before we finish here, lads, there's one thing um, I want to talk about very briefly. We talked about the deficit. We didn't really talk about the debt. People always get those two, those two concepts confused and mixed up, including Boris Johnson. He did it several times during his election. He confused the debt and the deficit. Because the deficits are our 12-month period of what we spend, so-called, and what we take in, so-called. Uh, and they're all saying, but we have to throw that on the debt. And where we want to go for the next podcast is, I want to look at that concept of national debt. But that's also thrown in people's faces. Oh, my fucking God, we're 157 debt to GDP ratios and that's usually the scare tactic as well about you make you said it yourself John at the start about passing that debt on to future generations mm -hmm. does debt matter that much does national debt matter that much in the, in the scope of things John go to you first no me uh, certainly not if you look at the empirical evidence from countries like uh, Japan there's the classic case here I, I forget the exact proportion I think it's almost like 100 yeah, uh, uh, yeah so it's absolutely massive and a very highly productive um, you know, economy where it's not a basket case um, at all. So there's, there's an example where you don't need to, but of course the issue is who owns that government debt? And if it's a, the sovereign you know, central bank, well, as you put it once yourself, Stefan, you know, so you owe yourself you know, 10 quid, are, are you particularly bothered? And I think it's, it's the way in which um, that idea of deficit and debt carries with it such a a powerful, almost historical, moral Dickensian, you know, the, you know, people who've David, been into David debt. Graber, David Graeber, unfortunately, passed away. He wrote brilliantly on that stuff, didn't he, about the kind of moral and emotional yeah. attachment to these ideas of being in debt and deficit. The, 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 the last 10 years, they've really drawn on all of that, haven't they, to infect how people feel, not just think, feel about this, about the economy they live in. Stuart, what about yourself? We'll finish on this point. What about debt? Why... You know, is national debt that important or are there other kinds? Several things about debt. First, uh, debt compared to GDP at the moment is relatively low historically, certainly compared to Napoleonic Wars and compared to the situation after World War One and World War II. Interest on the national debt is historically pretty low. I think less than it was in Thatcher's day because interest rates are so low. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we also have to remember that if I lend my son a tenner, right, then as a family, we're still, we still have the same level of wealth, right? So I think something like 75%, maybe a little bit less of British debt is owned by British institutions. Uh, and the same for the United States. And uh, people have this idea that Chinese own all America's debt. They don't, they own about six or 7%, maybe a wee bit less now, right? So a large part of it is owned by other British institutions. It is not money being placed out of the window. So important point to remember. And I think that the Japanese debt, 50% of the Japanese debt is owned by the Bank of Japan. About 25%. In that sense, Stuart, 
fifty percent of Jap- Japan's so-called debt isn't debt at all. No, because and and the same uh, here, twenty-five percent is owned by the Bank of England, and in America, I think other other federal institutions own about thirty percent of American debt. So the big headline figure, which is used to scare us, is bullshit. But for reasons. We can probably understand the BBC, nor indeed most of the press, do not try and explain this to people. Right, lads, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We've got a bit to go yet, and I want to, um, I'm going to stop us there. We've done about half, we've done 35 minutes, and we're going to come back next week, if you're okay, and we'll do another half hour or so, 35 minutes on this very uh, topical topic, very difficult topic. So thanks very much for your initial contributions. When we come back next week, folks, I think we'll kick off where we left off. We're going to talk a little bit more about debt. And also how we all kind of come into this idea of talking about MMT through, through and you mentioned earlier, Stuart, quantitative easing. It popped up in 2011. We all thought to ourselves, what the fuck is that? What's this QE thing there? And it was kind of the chink in the armour. For me personally, it started my investigation. I wonder how these government finances actually work. And is deficits, are deficits important? Is national debt that important? And in fact, who owns that debt? Um, because all those same arguments are particularly applicable right now as the government pushes again into austerity 2.0. So, lad, thanks very much for that. And I'll uh, I'll see you soon, all right? All right. Take care. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Stuart. All the best. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil.